What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. And yes, we should be doing uh, the Police Academy retrospective. But we're not. Uh, due to illness and, uh, let's say, scheduling conflicts, we haven't been able to get together to complete that. But we will. We will be back to complete our Police Academy retrospective. However, I didn't want to let you down. And there was another episode. I was going to put this as a bonus, so let's just slot it in there. Recently, I uh, was had the, the good fortune of meeting with uh, Dan Abnett, comic writer, uh, an artist, I.N.J. Colbert, uh, to talk about the series that they have been doing in uh, the pages of British sci-fi anthology comic 2000 AD. Uh, their comic is called Brink, or their series is called Brink. Um, they're on to, they've done their five books. The fifth book is now out uh, in paperback from uh, 2000 AD, Dot com uh, and other sellers you can find on Amazon and, and everywhere else. I recommend it. Um, we talk about the book, we talk about the art, and we talk about the influences, um, and so yeah, and why the things as well. We talk about all of the little bits of interest as well. So, for now, I'm going to hand this over. Um, this is me interviewing with Dan Abnett and INJ Colbert. Enjoy and have a merry merry Christmas. Okay, guys, here we are. Then I am here with INJ Colbert and Dan Abnett to talk about Brink. They are four books in, well, five books technically, because the fifth book has been released within 2008 and is now available um, from Rebellion. Uh, I am four books in, I should say. I've read the first four books and I will be getting the fifth book. So I want to talk about Brink, but first and foremost, let me introduce them. Uh, and I know he's not been called Ian, so I'm going to call him Colbert. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for the purposes of this interview, uh, and we have spoken relatively recently. But, uh, but, uh, Corbett, how are you doing? How are you good? good? Thank you, good, thank you. Good, you? Good. <laughs> oh, good? yeah, I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm talking to you two on a, on a Thursday, evening, so I'm quite happy. Uh, yes, we talk about uh, talked about Salamadre and we talked about a lot of things on that podcast yeah. as well. So, uh, yeah. and you're back to talk about Brink, uh, but Dan, you are you are uh, new to 20th Century Geek, um, so. <laughs> Uh, if you want to introduce yourself to those that those few that may not know you uh, of my audience, uh, my name is Dan Ablett. I am a writer of novels, comics, uh, the occasional computer game, and other stuff. Uh, it has been suggested that my I change my name by deed poll to the prolific Dan Abnett because I write a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes, uh, and I indeed do write a lot of stuff. Um, and I've worked with Ian now on uh, well a number of different projects. We we we. Um, First collaborated on the New Dev Audience for Vertigo. Mm. Did a series of Dark Horse. Been doing uh, did did Wild's End for Boom. Ten years ago, we did that. Ten yes, shockingly, ten years ago. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, obviously, um, and Brink for 2008. Uh, we did, we did t- Brink actually because we'd enjoyed working together so much on American books. And uh, but we both worked for 2008, but separately. And we went, mm. why don't we just do something for 2008 together? And uh, and that's where where Brink came from. Um, yeah. So yes, that's me. 
So it was it was was it more of a okay? That's no, it's great. It's good introduction. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> but to get back to that then, because because um, you know, I do often because I've I've read I read sort of like uh, Wild's End and I've I've read uh, I've actually got like the, the Dead Wardians, uh, so I know of those works and stuff. So I often do think of you guys sort of you know collaborating and stuff. Um, so Brink though, did it come out? Was the collaboration the collaboration was there first, and you came up with the idea together, or was it something you had and were like, this is the idea I think we can work on, like. Where yeah. did the idea for that come from? Um, yeah. the, the first thing we did, Dead Wardians, was an idea that I'd had. Uh, and uh, it, it literally came to me one day, uh, sort of fully formed. I went, oh, is that a good idea? Oh, I think that's a good <laughs> idea. So I wrote it down, horrified to realise that I was writing uh, writing an idea that, that involved uh, vampires and zombies, which, which are that were then and are still ubiquitous and I swore I'd never do anything with either of them because everybody was doing that but I had this idea and I went oh no that's too good to miss so I pitched it to an editor I knew at Vertigo at the time uh, just 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 uh, just sort of uh, speculatively and they emailed me back the same day and said we want to do it it was the fastest Vertigo had ever commissioned anything uh, and and I went oh fantastic I better better think about how I actually write it then and I, I knew um, Carl Bard's or Flash, as we call him, uh, Carl Bard's work um, uh, from uh, 2008. But I, did, I hadn't even met him. We'd never even spoken. But I, I, I liked his stuff. So I reached out to him. I said, would you like to? I thought he would be perfect for Dead Wardians. Mm. So he said, yes, we did it together. We realised we got on extremely well. And in fact, although Dead Wardians was my idea, obviously in coming to it, brought with him all sorts of things that, that, that became part of the story in terms of the way it was visually told. Um, which was terrific. So we then went, oh, what else can we do? And that's where we moved off and, and went to, to to Wild's End and for uh, Dark Ages at, uh, at uh, Dark Horse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time we arrived at Brink, uh, we had evolved a working relationship whereby we, we sort of brainstormed ideas together. Uh, and I yeah. sort of brainstormed... Well, I, the simple way of putting it is I sort of brainstormed the story side of it and, and mm. Ian brainstormed the visual side of it. But that is it's far too simplistic a way of looking at it because actually those two things inform each other completely. Uh, as well, there's there's an interchange yeah there's all sorts of things there's all sorts of weird things that happen in their conversations. I, I would say that almost every time we brainstorm an idea... What we start with, our starting place is never what we end up with, which is yeah, I think yeah. is an interesting thing. They just, I mean, more than anything else I've ever brainstormed with anybody else, we tra we transmute whatever it is we're doing from an initial premise into right. I can't remember what we were talking with about at the beginning, but now this is what we've got. And um, and so we we said, wait, two thousand eighteen. What should we do? We went, we'll do science fiction because we haven't really done science fiction anywhere else. And we had this basic notion, I think, fairly early that it, we wanted to do something sort of creepy and and off-putting rather than explicit. And that uh, I think the elevator pitch essentially was Outland meets True Detective. Uh, that was sort of our starting point. And and then it evolved from there. And 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 and. Um, and, and and that's where it came from. And there were all there were so many things about it. It's probably worth saying this up front. There were so many things about it that weren't 2000 AD that we were aware of as we were putting the story together. We knew that the length of the stories that we wanted to tell was two, if not three times longer than most series run for in a slot in 2000 AD. We knew that it was not um, uh, overtly fantastical in a way that a lot of 2000 AD stories were, that it was much more sort of mundane and almost realistic. 
that's not to say they don't do realistic stories, but it was it didn't fit into that mold of the what do you think of as a classic 2008 story. Um, it was extremely, extremely conversational, and that we would deliberately roll us out this kind of deadpan, deadpan, flat affect conversational deductive procedural mm. with occasional bursts of violence and keep it very strange and um and so on and we went well we we sort of ended up with something we went we really like this we will show it to 2000 AD having built it for them but we don't expect them to commission it because there are so many things about it that makes it not a 2000 AD type of story thinking we would then probably have to take it somewhere else uh probably to an American publisher and to our astonishment Tharg uh said yes do it and so we did the first we did the first series and we had no idea what the um uh response would be and the response was extraordinary and very very positive indeed and so we've been doing it ever since and we we we've retained those key elements of the formula that we that we we we've uh, we included in the first one and that collaboration that brain because that brainstorming that I talk about about before we started it continues throughout mm. it is an ongoing process even when uh we're up and running with a series of it we are evolving things ian will bring me up and say i've just i've designed this i think it looks like this now and i go well if it looks like that we should make it do this instead of this you know we could so there's all these things happening and 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 i think that's i think that's why we well, I certainly enjoy doing it so much because it, mm. it, it, it's weird. It is, uh, I probably plot Brink in more detail than any other thing I write because it, we've got to make sure all the details work and there aren't yeah, going to yeah, be yeah. Hot holes. So in much, you know, sort of an outline for something like, I don't know, Sinister Dexter will be just a couple of paragraphs because I will just sort of improvise when I'm scripting. With this, it's, you know, before we get to a book, the entire series is written out episode by episode, explaining everything in, in excruciating detail. And even then, there is an evolution going on when we're, we're working together. Yeah, it's kind of, it's like um, one of the things early on, I think in the one of the books, the back of the first book, there's like a script bit. And mm. you'll see in there where it describes the crime scene. And I think in the script at that point, the body was on the floor. Yeah, and then I contacted you and I said um, we should have the body floating um, because it's a space. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it changes the nature of a crime scene because essentially, how do you deal with a situation like that? When is it locked down as a crime scene? Is it when you switch the gravity back on, <laughs> like, and then everything <laughs> where it falls where it is where it is? You know, you, it changes the nature of the crime scene completely. So that the world, in some way, has an effect on the situation. Yeah they can play it's one of those things so it's not just set in space for no good reason you know no. so but and, when, and when ian suggested that and we went that's a really yeah. good, dramatic unusual thing to do we yeah. then write okay we now need to work out how grab not how gravity works but how gravity works in yeah, our story <laughs> yeah. in terms of what how the gra gravitational technologies work yeah. which then led to us using it in other parts of the story uh, to, to to great effect, we do we go okay. Then, so the, there's a scene later in book one where where she's being chased, and that works in a completely different way because we use the idea that you can turn gravity on and off to, to mm -hmm. the way originally we 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 planned to do it. It's like Dan has a good, really good way of like because I'll come up with a high concept, and a high concept's all right, but it's just an idea. 
Uh, Dan will nail it down, give it a name and address. <laughs> and actually a function within the story that actually works. And I think the first time when I mentioned Ambigrab to you, you then went, right. And then that scene later on where they shoot the Ambigrab, that's entirely because you just went, I'll work with that. <laughs> and that riffing that we have, that that you just kind of it just it, it makes sure that we just have a bit more fun with it as we go along there's mm. nothing written in stone and set down we sort of just go what about if it was this and this and this and, well, well, and it well, changes things a little bit mm. and if things work uh, or don't work they get chucked out and changed and yeah that's okay but it's but it's all towards getting the right thing down you know at the end of it because i mean like wild's end for example we're talking about like i mean i i all i contributed to that was Wild's End, it wasn't even called that. It was something that I can't remember what it was called, but the, the thing I had was like one sentence, which was Ward Worlds meets Wind and Willows, to which Dan went, right, I've got like a six book series for that. <laughs> <laughs> Literally lit him up on fire and he just came back with a whole bunch of stuff and it was like, okay. So stuff sparks. Yeah, yeah. Because I always think that high concepts, like the high concept is if you imagine a kite flying around, and the low concept is you peg that kite to the ground so it doesn't just fly away. Mm. You know, it's effectively doing that. And the low concept's the, the hard work. But it's <laughs> like trying to, that is the, that's the hard thing, making things logically fit and everything in a story works for a reason and, and you know, not just for, just because it looks cool. Because high concept can look cool, but it can be meaningless, really, on its mm. own. It really needs to work. And that's where you know it's brilliant working with dan to be able to do that because you can just we spitball so much stuff dan will come out with a high concept and then he's on his own basically <laughs> <laughs> you just sort of like the touch paper you like, you like the yeah, paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it is to yeah. go so that we don't worry about what we chuck in 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 the, we call it omelet sessions because it is literally chucking in all the eggs and, <laughs> and mm. chuck in as much as you can to see where something potentially could go and sort of entertain the idea of there's a lot of what if discussions at that point at the beginning of just figuring out where it can go because like dan said often all the ideas they are what they are because of that process they're not what they were when we first came up with the idea if you get what i mean yeah. wild zen is kind of an exception because it's essentially a very easy elevator pitch to do mm. but, the, but the other ones are much harder to sort of pin down i think we started with true detective in space it was once the aesthetics started to come into it that it started to have that feel of that genre of 70s, you know, like 2010, Outlands mentioned, 2010, the other ones. Um, Moon is another one because that actually yes. draws on that genre of science fiction, yeah. Yeah. which is the blue-collar science fiction. Uh, yeah, I call it in, yeah, I call it like industrial science fiction. Yeah, that. Yeah. That look and feel has a reality, a sort of lived-in, reality to it and and certainly a working class kind of vibe to blue collar vibe to it and um so those sorts of things really kind of became tagged on but what we start with is pretty simple i remember the concept of it was what is initially what was fundamentally what is the big picture mm. and i remember dan saying that's great very large big picture but what if we went over here and we just looked at this person who happens to work here and and that became like, it's a completely different perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's always really good when you're bouncing off somebody who's who will get like, um, make you consider things in a slightly different way or whatever. Because when we don't agree, we always talked about this third idea thing. 
It's always yeah. interesting if we don't agree on something because usually what that means is we both kill our darlings to find out what the third thing is because the third thing is always the thing that works. Yeah. <laughs> that is the bit where it gets really exciting. If you don't, if you're like, my idea is brilliant. If I'm like that and Dan says, no, my idea is brilliant. <laughs> like, which we never do because we're grown-ups. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we... Um, if we are like that, like creatively, when that sort of you do get those creative loggerheads happen, but that immediately means there's a third option and it's mm. way better. And neither of us could have imagined it without going no. through that process. That's the other beautiful thing about it is being able to come up with stuff in this way. We often talk about ways that people can come up with ideas and generate ideas from all sorts of things. You know, it's a really cool process. It's the fun part of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. no, I mean, you, you said about the idea generation, because I mean, one of the things I would say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned sort of um, Outland as well, because that was one of the things, yeah. that was one of my touches, but reading this, I was like, because I've recently watched Outland for another podcast, we, yeah. we talked about, I'm reading, I'm, I'm reading Brink, and I'm like, oh, that I have that feeling, that industrial sort of science fiction, where you're, yeah. you're, you're following that, the blue collar workers. And you do get the, 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 the seniors and stuff. But one of the things I was fascinated by is, as I've gone through the four books, and I was going to ask, is like, it's it, there's world, because it's world building. Like, all this is world building. And so, you know, as you're adding on, like, okay, there's, you know, you've got like, book one, now you've got book two and book three, and you're adding to each of those. Like, are you keeping notes? Because... <laughs> It's pretty, so like you say, it's pretty yeah. tight that there's things like, you know, there are like minor characters that come back in like book three and you're like, yeah, like, even I'm scrabbling back and going, hang on, like, you know, oh yeah, yeah that's, yeah. it fits yeah, in. No, I, 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 and again, <laughs> it's, uh, I, as I said at the beginning, I write a lot of things and I do mm. try and keep a careful uh, record of the world building I do for any series or book or whatever else it is, but again, with 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 Brink, there is a there is a very high level of it because the story itself depends upon those small things. Yeah. It's it's you know you could with other things that are broader or more expansive, you can kind of wing it, and if you go, oh shit, I forgot I said that. Never mind. We can <laughs> we can get on with you know you can find it. We can work around it with this with this because it is so much about precise detail it's her it's, mm. it's her investigations of precise details that you need to make sure those things are consistent throughout and i i enjoy the uh, enjoy those moments where we can bring back something or make a make a call back to something or a character turns up or is at least referenced and we we're trying to do that without overdoing it and without mm. making the the world of brink seem seem unnecessarily small and incestuous there, there, there has to be a good if we're going to bring a character back for instance there has to be a really good reason why they're there and why it works in the context of the story we're telling. Um, and we got to that, it, it obviously, um, in book five, spoiler alert for you, but in book five, we actually do that with the entire story mm. loops and, and repositions itself. So we, we actually, we actually do yeah. something um, quite dramatic, which is, apparently has worked really well. People really, really like it, but we basically uh, retell something you've already, you already know, but from the point of view of someone else, Yes, yeah. and you can see the connective points between those things, and hopefully we're now at work on book six, and there are things that will be revealed in that where you go, oh, I understand now why they spent so much time doing that thing just now that seemed like interesting, but but you know, so again, we we're constantly building. We haven't, we have. Well, when we did the first one, we knew what else we could do, how we could use the format to tell more stories, but mm. but 
only once they came back and said, oh, it's been very successful, can you do some more, did we start to get more ambitious and bold and, and build bigger and also build more long-term. So we, we, we've got several sort of books worth of story that we think it would be great if we get to tell that. And in fact, what would have been book, uh, let me think, book, but actually it was originally going to be book five, but we've got a great idea for a story um, that we realised that if we told it, we couldn't tell several others. So that's what we slotted in book four, uh, book five, and indeed book six. Not that they're under underpowered stories, but we went. We'll never get a chance to tell these stories if we tell that one first. Okay. So we, we've yeah. got these kind of goals in mind about what we want to achieve, and therefore we know what we're setting towards. So that there will be these these greater payoffs. I suppose. I hope so. Do, do you? Guys... I suppose if somebody if somebody was to say. Um, you know, do we actually know what's going to happen? Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But that was a question. Yeah, sort of like, do you have an end? Point? Do you have an end goal in mind? Oh yeah, yes. But we also have we have contingencies. Yes, <laughs> we've got yeah. it's the best way to. Yeah, and one of those contingencies really is if is, is as has happened so many times so far. If we suddenly get a good idea, we go okay. We need to push back our end date mm-hmm. in order to make room for this. And I think I do think we do have an idea of what's going on. We have. We have a, a, an end goal. We have we have reveals. We have things where we go. When we finally get to the point, where we go right. That is it. We're now going to sort of do what we're going to do. Um, but to me, and I could be completely wrong about this, but to me, the uh, engagement of Brink is not so so much where the story goes. It's how it gets there. To yeah. me, it is a it is an experiential yeah. thing of. Of being in that environment, of being of being privy to those conversations and the things that happen, to the atmosphere, to the tension, to the to the moments of truly uncanny. Uh, we try each time to deliver, or certainly from my point of view, the story. I try and deliver endings that you go, "Oh God, that was satisfying." The resolution mm-hmm. of that, the you know, the reveal, the surprise, the twist, the the verdict, whatever it is, was good. But to me, it is the it is the it is the um, uh, uh, movement of the investigation and and occasionally how it intertwines with her own life, what little we see of it, that is the really, really key part. So it's the, I dare I say it, no, I'm going to say it anyway, it's the journey, not the destination. <laughs> I was about to say yeah. it. <laughs> no, it's, it's Dan will never true. say it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I, I see that and that is one of the things I love about it. I mean, it's sort of going from book one, again, you know, Spoilers when who hasn't read it, but I'm going to recommend it, but I'm not going to try not to spoil much. But like the 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 book itself has sort of um it keeps giving you surprises. Like the book's called uh Brink. Mm-hmm. And as you say, that sort of has you know multiple meanings because sort of they live uh the first character, one of the first characters you meet is obviously uh Bridget Curtis, who becomes mm-hmm. sort of like you know the main character, and her partner, who I'm just gonna check his name, is, is called Brinkman. Brinkman. Yeah, and so and everyone goes, Oh, we call him Brink, and you're like, Oh. And so, and he's this sort of like you know rugged looking sort of you know almost yep. square George. Sort of like he's clearly he's, the lead. He's yeah, exactly yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so you sort of go, oh, he's your Sean Connery of, of Outland, but he's your Marshal. Yeah. And then obviously that sort of isn't isn't the direction it goes in. So you're sort of like, oh, you're gonna you know this is you know no spoilers because she's all over the covers of, of future things. Like, no, know. of course not. But but, 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 but what you're alluding to there is a demonstration of the fact that sort of nothing is out of bounds as far as we're concerned. No. Is that yeah. is that we want people? We want the readers to be pleasantly in a state of tension that they don't know what's going to happen when you turn the page because 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 anything's up for grabs. And 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 without sort of showing you how we make the sausages in too graphic detail, one of the things we thought early on 
was that we would probably switch. Uh, we would if we got to carry on doing the story that we would regularly, not necessarily every book, but on a regular basis, we would switch the cast. We would move to a different character on a different habitat, doing a different thing. They'd all be connected. So you begin to see this great pattern emerging of what was going on. Um, but that we would change the cast, um, weirdly, like True Detective does. Um, that wasn't a deliberate crib from that, but that was just just the... Uh, and I keep mentioning True Detective as a touchstone simply because it was that sense of unease. Yes. That was we wanted to try. But anyway, um, that we would move the cast around. But by the end of the first book, really, and uh, we found we had, uh, I suppose, accidentally created a character in Curtis that we really liked. Mm. We really liked her sort of yeah. sullen silence and determination, and and and, the, and all these all these kind of things. And and, and 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 obviously, we wanted to build a good character. The way she looked, the way she behaved, the way she spoke. So it wasn't like we were surprised that we did a good job of building a character, but she was so solid. We went, no, we're staying with her. So she she has then really continued through with with the with the the the, the partial exception of book five, which is a special case. Uh, but but that she has actually become the core of it in a way that we weren't expecting because we didn't. Two thousand AD stories, um, generally speaking, are either uh, milieu based. They're actually you know this is a strip about this thing. Um, this setting and all sorts of things can happen in it, but almost always they are character driven. It's Judge yeah. Dredd, it's Strontium Dog, whatever it is. That's the way you hang the strip on the character. And it's like, what adventures can we tell to that? And, and goodness only knows, I've written enough stories to that, Eddie, to, to know that I've done that myself. Mm. This is these these are the characters. It's this week's adventure, uh, and the, the series continues until you run out of stories that you can think of to tell with that character. With this, we, with Brink, we want the idea was the setting and the people within it that it was it was that was what it was going to be about. It was it was going to be about the world, and that we would use different characters in order to explore that world. And to our real surprise, by the end of book one, it was like, wait a minute, we've written a character driven strip again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what well, you say that, but like you say. The, the, the... You say because you know, and this is a cliche in and of itself. And they go, "Oh, the, the you know, the location is a character." Mm. But, but and granted, you know, um, Curtis in itself goes from habitat to habitat. But the brink, those habitats, the brink is yes, yeah, is is is, is most, def- most definitely a character mm. in the story, and even the different environments and and, and you know, um, the art, uh, Colbert. I know that the, the the thing I notice is how. Um, your line work, I've always liked your line work is very good, but the colouring you use and this sort of, it, sort of, it defines the areas. Like yeah. especially in book two, when you go into um uh the high ranking offices of uh, what's the name of the company? Because I can't pronounce it. Jun uh Juno Corp. Juno yeah. Corp, yeah. As when you get to those, like everything under you know, anything that's sort of like if you think of it of upstairs, downstairs, right? Everything that's behind the scenes <laughs> is that sort of like dollar color. You've got purples yeah, oh, yes. and, and strong yeah. reds and blues and these dark colors. You mentioned that in the first book where she, you know, where um, <laughs> Curtis gets sucked into that thing and she's in that fight towards the end when it's all revealed. It's all dark. You go into sort of like the the the, the HR office, which I love, uh, and even sort of um, the CEO's office and all these other things. Like it's brightly colored. It's well lit. There's yellows and there's oranges and there's all these. Other, and so I like the fact that there's cl- these clear distinctions um, in these spaces. Um, yeah. And so, but well, that, well, that is yes, it, 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 it is, you're right. It's a cliche to say that the, the you know the character in the setting is one of the important characters. The, the, is one of the the setting is one of the important characters in, in a story, and that is often true because it because it determines so much. But but 
I think one of the things that we've deliberately done, because it is an interesting setting and there's something ter terrifically uh, depressing about the idea that the human race is going to end up in that, you know, sort of claustrophobia of its own creation. Um, not to say that it's a political story at all, but the more we write it, we, 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 <laughs> it's like it's like we're writing some kind of commentary by accident about what, what we're doing. I wanted to touch on that, but we, we will get we'll to that. Yeah. But, but what I was going to say was that, that, that although the um, uh, we sort of come up with a case that, that she's dealing with each time and how they connect together, etc., 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 one of the things we do try and do is to try and think of a of a of a, of a really cool distinguishing theme for each book to say that's the book that was about that so book one was the you know the setup one that established the brink but book two is the one where we go okay it's a habitat again but this time it's a habitat that's being built so it's empty so the idea is like how do you go from massive overcrowding to somewhere that is completely empty contrast book three you you said upstairs downstairs i'm so pleased because that's exactly it. it was it was that whole idea of the 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 serving class keeping mm. we, keeping behind I think the we called it upstairs downstairs in space it, we did yeah <laughs> and that, that again gave it its distinguishing feature so you get incredibly opulent big spaces where ian actually was burying panel size to reflect those sorts of things yes um so 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 we got that and then and then book four is is, is essentially um uh, going to more about the inside of the the hsd but the distinguishing feature there is the fact that it is uh bridget's home and that she's gone home again and she has a personal connection to these things mm. which again shifts it in in terms of its of its feeling and and book five of it's got a high concept of tool is is like where we said it this time can we set it inside one of the previous stories mm. um and, and without giving anything away book six again has got a very distinct they, it, i wouldn't call them i think of them as gimmicks and i don't mean that in the in the disparaging sense but each each <coughs> story has got a distinguishing gimmick which plays out and has a bearing on the th the way things work so you might describe for instance in, in book four it's the it's the fact that they get fined for swearing. So that the the blacked out swear words that we've used previously, suddenly there is an in-world explanation for why that's happening and it becomes part of the investigation and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So the, you, we put these things in and go, oh, well, if it's there, let's use it. Let's make it part of the story. And I, I think that is that is right. I, I, think, I think that's the, the, sort of the way to do it. And, and, and similarly, the story I'm talking about that we postponed now twice, that I think will now be book seven, I think has got the most fabulous gimmick in it. There's a way of telling the story. People will go, "That's that's that's really <laughs> interesting." The way it it it, uh, it uses the technology in order to in order to tell something that otherwise wouldn't wouldn't get told. No, I think that's and I think you say how it's got to because I think it's in also you're saying about like the panel size and stuff. And you say you, you it's uh, there's almost like an integration in 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 the art and the way the story turns. You can see this is a collab a collaboration for this very purpose, yeah. like. Not just the color, but the panel sizing and all, this, all these elements of um, it helps the pacing as well. Yeah, like there are certain well, you pages a... where you've done that kind of you've you've used you know like you said you like there'll be less panels because you want to increase the pace for across pages and you bring it back down to multiple panels and there's a conversation. Oh, yeah. and you really are controlling the pace with the art, which I really sort of enjoy. There has um, there was a couple of times where I was trying. To, the first time I think I was trying something in terms of well when i started with the color um i i'd actually done the, the first two episodes or the first episode and then i had a hernia operation so i was in <laughs> hospital i think i did or a repair or something and i was off my face for a while because of the hospital drugs but i remember sitting there while i was on hospital drugs <clears throat> thinking i need to recolor that first book it needs to look like tokyo at night time or something mm. it needs to have this sort of the the actual neon 
uh, yeah. street and stuff like that. And the other thing I remember thinking was this: the whole the sets looked really like nobody actually. I, I remember there was. Um, do you remember the TV show called Rome from mm. years ago in the BBC? And one of the, in the opening titles, it would go. The camera sort of goes through the streets, but what you see is people have graffitied on the walls and stuff. That, that's how they work the titles through on that. But I was also thinking of um, primarily of um, um, there was a graffiti book that came out in the nineteen eighties. There were two that came out predominantly uh, uh, quite well known ones at that period of time, and they showed the subway cars in the in New York, absolutely caked in graffiti, yeah. like from wall to, from floor to ceiling, and that was immediately I thought, okay, neon neon lights in Tokyo or or somewhere like that, uh, where it's just neon everywhere. And but on top of that, and that kind of color scheme, but on top of that, graffiti everywhere at the same time. So the minute I got home, I just went yeah. and redid that chapter. Um, uh, redid, I don't know. I think it was just one actually, but uh, I redid it and in terms of the backgrounds, and then went, okay, this is what it's supposed yeah. to look. Mm. It was like, it but those, well, those color schemes also. Those color schemes also, I think, helped to uh, under under underpin the the. The, the tonal quality of the story itself because you for, for instance the bits you're talking about there there's an awful lot of that lovely hot pink which to me is a completely oh. 1980 they're completely 1980s yeah. color and that that to me that 1980s vibe in the color underpins yeah. the lo-fi analog 1970s science fiction yeah. technology that's going on so it almost dates it it's the it's yeah. the future as Literally. as 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 imagined in the past <laughs> In, 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 through films that we're all terribly fond of, because that's that's the kind of technology we think te science fiction should yeah. have. <laughs> that's one of the comments that we got from that episode. It's it's basically when I've forgotten her name now. Um, um, the head of um, thingy in book two, when she shows up at the station. The oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 Marianne. No, Marianne. Yeah. Miriam, yeah, yeah, Miriam, yeah, Miriam. That's it. So I can't remember the characters either. It's like remembering all your kids' names, but yeah. <laughs> it's not that bad. But, um, um, no, but her character, she smelled a certain way. So I was really, I basically put hot pink in because of that. So yeah. it's in the gutters whenever she's in the in the in the panel, and it's funny because the, the intention was, I wanted you to be able to smell this cat, like the 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 perfume that she uses is quite overbearing. So mm. that when she's in a room, you definitely know she's in a room. It's thick in the air, the smell of this perfume. And I just thought, well, so I'll just make the borders all hot pink. And then lo and behold, somebody came back and said, oh, you can smell the character. <laughs> <laughs> Please. But the, just the, thought, it yes, is. That, someone. Exactly. The, I think the strip is full of that. I think I think there's there's a lot of obvious uh uh, mechanisms at work when you read Brink in terms of in terms yeah. of the plot and the story mm. and the dialogue and the characters and the art and the way it all works and what the sets look like and all the obvious things that propel it along. But I think there are all sorts of um, and, and these are things that we've done organically, not 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 because we've decided that we're going to show off. But there are lots of things going <laughs> on. There. there are loads. Of, I think there are loads of invisible drivers mm. in the art. For instance, there are loads of things that are actually forcing the story ahead in ways that that you you don't notice. Except you well, notice what a, their effect is. The vertical and horizontal uh, panel yeah. thing in, in the class, in the upstairs, downstairs one was because what I wanted to do was when you when you read a comic and you have a wide panel, you're on it, your eye is on it for a lot longer yeah. than a vertical one. So normally in an action sequence, the vertical panel is for quick action 
and a wide panel as for a, a panel where your eye is going to stay on it and travel across the page. So it's like a staccato when you see a vertical one. But what I wanted to do was just show how cramped their living space was, but also the attention of the reader is afforded more on the person with luxury than it is with a person who's yeah. got nothing. Mm -hmm. mm. And that's so that you're in the reader's position psychologically reading it and you're affording the rich guy more <laughs> than you are the other people in it. Because I wanted to be able to show that sort of class system in terms of, which sounds yeah. nuts, but... Um, no, no, but they, that's a good, really good example of the sort of thing I'm talking about. Is it the, the, the yeah. fact that we've 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 deliberately done things that are, reason. that yeah. are almost subliminal in order to almost determine the rate at which it gets read and understood. So there's all yeah. the things that Ian's doing with the panel shape and size and contrasting things like that. There's all the stuff that's. I mean, you know, in terms of words per square inch, there's a lot more dialogue in five pages of Brink than there are in most other 2000 AD five page stories. Oh, yeah. and that's because again, it's conversational. And that's deliberately, if you like, because there's more to read, but it is conversational. It's slowing down the pace. So it's deliberately a slower read. I, I mean, not just because there's more of it, but but just because of the the rate at which you're reading it. So again, that's another one of the invisible drivers, like slowing you down and making it feel like time is passing and people are thinking a lot and they're doing these things. The other thing that I did, and I, again, did it instinctively very early on, was I realised that I wanted it to have uh, this thing that we call the flat affect, which is the mm -hmm. idea that most people you encounter are professionals talking to other professionals about professional matters using professional terms. So the, the, coming yeah. up with the, it, it's it's not a, it's not a slang or a jargon, but just coming up with the manner in which they speak. And I, like all comic book writers, use underline for emphasis when I'm writing a script in order to indicate that I want the letter to put a word in bold. Mm -hmm. And in most scripts I write, there's probably a a, a a a word in bold in almost every every speech balloon somewhere just to give you the emphasis of that sentence because that's the way that comic book dialogue works. Um, there are about I would say seventy five to eighty percent less bold in brink i've deliberately used it as little as i possibly can and only when it really needs uh emphasis because yeah. it is it's either a shouted word or the emphasis is vital in order to communicate the sense of a sentence so i've taken all the other ones out so the scripts don't look like the scripts for anything else i write because i want that almost to have that monotone deadpan thing um where you have those conversations because because like I said, professionals talking to each other are not melodramatically emphatic about no. things. It's already matter of fact, and that's what I wanted to get that matter of factness, which again is another of these invisible drivers telling you what the speed of the story is, you know? It also gives you a sense that you've arrived somewhere where a conversation's already been taking place. Yeah. So you get a sense of a lived-in world, because there's a thing in drama where you arrive late, get out early yeah in terms of scene structure but it, it but in this case this sense a bit like the way that star wars looks well like, i think yeah i think i think like i think, a, I think it bring, like a... it bring it's 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 arrived far too late and never get out isn't it we really decided again before we first did the first episode that we also would not uh essentially would not explain anything that everything that needed, to, and there would be no moments of outright exposition. That is to say, yeah. everything that was explained was legitimately explained in situ by characters who were explaining it to other people because they needed to know it. That we wouldn't have any of those, as you know, Bridget Curtis, <laughs> blah, 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 blah moments. Those, those sort of things. Nor would we obey the 
the time-honored tradition of comics, the time-honored standby of comics, which is that the moment a character appears in a scene, one of the other characters must name them. Hello, Captain mm. America. It's good yeah. to see you again. None of that sort of stuff. We wouldn't have any of those things. So we we stripped that out, which is why we then ended up with the tagging system, whereby we have the, you have these sort of on-screen um, gloss as to what things are. And, and, and we did that so that we could keep the reader informed and not lose them completely. But we didn't have to have characters talking artificially mm-hmm. in ways that would make people go, well, oh, real people don't talk like that. So again, trying to make them sound like real people because they had real conversations, but they didn't mention every, their name every five minutes and that kind of <coughs> stuff. But then once we got the tagging system in it, we went, wait a minute, we can use that for other things. We can do things with that that explains more than just the necessary bits mm-hmm. of exposition, but actually there are sort of clues hidden in them sometimes. There's sometimes a piece of information will be given you about a character or a place, and you go, wait a minute, if that's the case, and you know, and it's not something, it's something the characters themselves are unaware of. It's just happening there in the in the sort of um, in the kind of situation of, of what the information is being expressed. So like I said, loads of invisible things happening that, that hopefully you you absorb as you go. Oh, you do. And this is the thing I say technically I, mean, <clears throat> I want to go back to those taggings in a minute. But technically this is the thing. Technically it's 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 fantastic. And you know I think but like you say when it's the, it's technically that good you don't notice it because you yeah. are just being that's the that's the hope. <laughs> and that's the, yeah and that's it. It does work because it it does uh, control the pace and you do sort of have that thing of sort of like it's you say it's that um, it is a conversation it's an investigation as you said it's it's, to, it's done by professionals and and so this isn't a, a shooty shooty punchy punchy kind of comic this isn't the the you know mm. a pew pew kind of at every page no. <clears throat> and but it shouldn't be because if it was then they'd be terrible well, if it was, it would be Joe Shred, and that would be fine because that's yeah. what Joe, I mean. I mean, that's 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 doing a massive disservice to the high quality stories of Joe Shred. No, no, no. Joe, Joe Shred is, is an heroic action story about a cop. Yeah, but it's, like, it's, with, with, why do another one of these? This is this is not going to be that. That's why when the violence happens, it's more it exactly. It's more it happens from half a page. Every every yeah, but yeah. it's so unpleasant and hopefully again realistic that people react. Things happen in kind of unpredictably horrible ways, and you go, "Oh, that that's not very." That's not dramatic. That's not a dynamic moment. That's yeah. a, that's just just nasty. No, but I, I think that's the that... point. So as I say, the point about say it not being because you're right. I, and I, I am a massive fan of Judge Dredd. Not you know, and I like a bit of shooty shooty punchy punchy. But of course, when you are going to the, when you're trying to sort of emulate that '70s aesthetic of of industrial science fiction, like if you then insert all that stuff into it, it feels it feels inauthentic. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And that thing, that's the thing of it. Like this, it, this feels authentically of that era and of that thing. Because I want to talk about the tags. You know, when you say you hear noise, you say you smell a character. Mm-hmm. I, I hear a noise when I hear when I read. Excellent. <laughs> do, do you know? Like it's from Alien. It's from out. It's from uh, Outland. You know when they have the screens and there's the sort of when the text comes up. Yeah. That clicking, <laughs> sort of computerized clicking. Yeah, noise. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's what I hear when I'm reading those, because that's, that's how I fantastic. imagine them. Yeah. So I love them. I think they they were especially when you get them for the habitats, and it is like, yeah, and I'm like, you know, the habitat so and so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Built in this year, and I'm like, I love that. It's great. <laughs> um, You'll be pleased to know that I actually, for for reasons of aesthetics and 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 uh, and whatever, I actually type on a old school clicky tick keyboard because I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy the tactile feel of a clicky the keyboard satisfaction rather than, of those. yeah and so actually when I'm typing those sentences it's actually going fantastic that is incredibly satisfying to know that's a brilliant Boland Simon Boland does a brilliant job of it because those scripts 
when they come in, that's a tight amount of work that he does on those books. Really, the space he has to work with and stuff. <laughs> but I think it's also um, it, one of the brilliant ways is the aesthetic of it that he put to that immediately, right from from the get go with that that tag with the like line with the dot at the end of it. But I also really like the way that he he gets our scripts and well, he gets Dan's script, but in it he's got the. Um, Dan writes the whole thing, but he writes it with all the swearing in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> poor Simon's got to block them out. Yeah. <laughs> so like, no, it, it, again, I write the, I write them in so that the sentences make sense properly. Yeah. Rather than just like putting in putting in Grawlix and stuff like that. Yeah. So 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 the, 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 there's a little. I, I just repeat it every every script now, but there's an instruction at the beginning of each script, which is which is that we you know yeah. we're we're going to block out the swear words. Uh, and I say so. So, so when I underline a word, I mean make it bold for emphasis. When I put a word in bold in the script, I mean black it out. Yeah. And then I just write all this filthy dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Some of it, some of it, some all of it. <laughs> and then just put in bold all the words that he can't actually write in there. And then we, we have and then... A, we have a triple check system before the book goes yes. out. Basically, <laughs> there's, there's the editor gets it, I get it, Dan gets it. And we're we always it. scanning the boxes to see. And it's almost swear. always that we've always we've almost always missed a swear, and we'll get an, an email from Tharg saying, "I think this episode's good to go out this afternoon, but I think we left a fuck on page three. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, H three is always the best place to have a fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, the one thing I want to talk about is you mentioned obviously about um, True Detective and being a procedural, and we've talked. We'll touch on the sort of procedural element of being the conversation on being professionals. But I want to sort of touch on this weird. You said about this unease, mm. and that we, we we were touching on before we started sort of this, the the weird fiction element, um, and the the, the 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 unease of this is. We know, and it's sort of, it's it's sort of, again, it's not an exposition because it comes up in conversation. And it's sort of this idea that they're on a ticking clock. Like these habits, I mean, it's, it's a whole part of, of book one, really, that, that this is a, there's a ticking clock. Like these, these mm-hmm. habitats are not sustainable beyond a certain point, but no one's really trying to do anything because it's either too expensive to invest in propulsion and so on and so forth. So you've already got this unease of this thing being unsustainable. And like, you know, you, you've been in space, this manufactured mm-hmm. thing, you would like between there's like the hole between you and a vacuum mm-hmm. and it's not sustainable. So that's, there's that unease. And then you are throwing in these, these cults or these sects and this idea of, of this sort of, demon god living in the sun or that mm-hmm. sun, which is you know um and so which is very lovecraftian in this idea of this these elder gods or whatever mm-hmm. but one of the things I'm, i like to throw this in from a weird fiction point of view is you have all these sects and this other thing these cults and they often have some sort of like creation theory they obviously you know they they, they might, you guys are building it around a destruction yeah yeah, like this is an end game, an end sort of apocalypse, you know, like an ultimate apop- ultimate apocalypse kind of uh, cult, and it's and so there's this constant doom sense in everything, mm-hmm. um, and and sort of you keep weaving it into, it. and then you move away from it. So I love the fact you'll have like you know, oh yeah, uh, Br- Brink witnesses it in the first sort of book, and then you you, you get some of the set, and then and then uh, Bridget Curtis will see something I think in the second book, and she expresses, but it's it's never like. It's never explicit, as you said. It's constantly sort of going. This could just be the nudge, which is the drugs. Uh, well, exactly. That's the it. Yeah. Could be this, or it could be that. 
Uh, it could just be the fact that they were so crowded and so forced into his environment. This thing has just become like a way for people to process this, this fear and this doom. Yeah. And so I love the fact that it's never pinned down. Like you said, you know, it's never, but it's there. Yeah. It's tangible throughout all yeah, of yeah. every everyone you meet is touched by this. Exactly. I, and we, it, well, we've we've tried. We, one of the things we've tried to do with that actually is is that wherever for every bit of weirdness you get, particularly if it's a, if it's an ostensibly explicit piece of weirdness where you actually see something properly weird, mm. we always build into it a sort of eject a seat which says oh but, but was it real really or was it was it simply it just like altered consciousness or was there another explanation for it and for every weird concept introduced uh there will be at least one counter theory which explains it really neatly uh, mm. I, I found, when you get to book five you'll find there are a couple of moments there where some of the things that you've you, you would have considered creepy for five books somebody just goes oh no that's just that and you go oh god is it really they're just they're like a really prosaic everyday thing. So, so it comes down to the idea they're cops hunting people who are essentially out of their minds because of the horrible conditions they live in and the drugs they take who happen to be killing people. Mm. Uh, and they have almost fabricated this illusory weirdness that is their escape mechanism for the shit that they live in. Mm. Or is it? That's the yeah. whole thing. Or is it? Could be, it could have been called. Or is it? You know that whole idea. So, like, what? Is, what is the disturbing thing? And I think there is unmistakably um, that Lovecraftian feel to it. I think in places. And in fact, I suppose, I suppose we easily could have decided to make it a mythos story and you and, and use the mythos. But but again, to come back to True Detective as that touchstone point, one of the other things I like about True Detective is it's kind of second-hand or third-hand Lovecraft. It's definitely Lovecraft, but it derives as much from Lovecraft's circle of imagination, sort of the sort of collective mythos rather than the original and that kind mm. of stuff. So, and and again, it's full of those moments where you go, was that really weird, or was that just because I'm now used to the idea that it's going to be weird? I'm expecting it to be weird, and so we. We wanted to. I've, I've always been f quite fascinated. I think Ian has too about about just how ridiculously successful Lovecraft's mythos has become. Mm. How how it's permeated weird fiction. There are many other great mythos and strangenesses mm. and things out there, but none of them have got the penetrative power of the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, and it's like, well, why? And it's not just because it's particularly well done, and it's not because it's got that a particular. You know, the, 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 it's all. It's. It, I think one of the reasons that it has been so successful, and it has been everybody now wants to do something that touches on the mythos. It's all. There was a point in the eighties and early nineties where it's like, it's, it's, it's the, you know, it's the thing to do. Oh, it's going to turn out to be related to the Cthulhu mythos, of course. And and I think that is because there has always been a sense even with Lovecraft himself and the other people who wrote that stuff in the early days, is, is it, is it real? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There is, there was always a sense that it's like, is he, is he making this stuff up or is he getting it from somewhere? Because it had a sense of a resonance. The, the idea that, 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 you know, people in the 1980s could publish, allegedly publish the, the Necronomicon. Mm -hmm. Oh, is it the real Necronomicon? There was always that sense of, and it's very, uh, it's very Borges actually, the idea is that it was it, was it fiction that's becoming real or was it some reality that is permeating fiction? And I like that. And, I, and I, I, you know, it's all order to try and emulate that. But I thought rather than just borrowing it and joining that, is there a way we can fabricate that same sense of uncertainty as to whether the strangeness was 
just strange because that's how we saw it or was genuinely strange and impinging upon our, and our reality without simply going to Lovecraft's toolbox and saying, all right, we're nicking everything here and we're just going to use it ourselves. So I think yeah. that was one of the things we deliberately set out to do was to sort of do a mythos story that wasn't that mythos, but was trying to use its its mechanisms to freak you out. And it, it works in that sense, because I think you're right, you know, the, the, the term Lovecraftian gets mm. bandied around for, you know, and it, it, so much stuff, you know. Yes. And some of it's so much on the fringes. Actually, like you say, you, you, you know, it, because there is a wider genre of weird fiction, and we, we talked about a couple of others we talked obviously about, and especially talking touching on um, True Detective, which was obviously, you know, was partially inspired by the works of Thomas Legati. Um, mm-hmm. But there's loads of these others that sort of have contributed to weird fiction. And But one of the things that I like about the weirdness in this or the weird fiction element is that thing of like, you know, so you've got this, this out, but the, 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 it's the fact that some people do believe it. Yes. And how much of it does it start to infringe or in sort of um, infuse with re- our reality? If people, if enough people believe it, it starts to become real. Don't yeah. isn't, that, isn't that the modern day? Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fake news, yeah. Or, yeah. But like I said, that's it. I, 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 mean, I, I certainly thought early on that the, 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 much as I love Lovecraftian fiction, it's it, it is now such a shortcut to making people think this is a weird story uh, that it's now lazy to do that. Yes. The first few times people did it, you went, "Oh, that's so cool!" That it's 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 kind of seeped across into another thing. But it's now like it's, it's just a shorthand. It's like, how do I make the story feel real? Oh, I'll, I'll mention Nal Yepetep and everybody will go, oh, oh. you know yeah. what I mean? And it's like, and 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 sometimes it's done to great effect. And I'm thinking, mate, can you do the same thing without it being referential? Can you do the same thing by can you create that same mood without any exterior sense that uh, that it's drawing from something else and therefore has become sort of transtextual or or, or, or intertextual? And, and I think that's one of the things that we wanted to do. And also the idea that. That particularly Curtis, whether Curtis believes it's real or not, mm, and there is that so. becomes increasingly doubtful because almost almost everybody's going, this stuff isn't real, and yet, um, is that she's realized one of the only ways to deal with it is to treat it as if it is real. Yeah. Because the people she's dealing with believe it's real. But the more you do that, the more you are creeping to the point where it's like you're gonna start to convince yourself of this as well. Well, this is the thing. One of the things I like about in the fact that you know you've stuck with Curtis, is, and I think this has been the, the benefit of, of sticking with the character is uh, the phrase. I'll, I'll say I'm halfway through book four, and the thing I'm thinking about the phrase that came to me is if you look into the void for too long, the <laughs> void looks back. Yeah, and that's where the well, I'm, I'm reading four. I'm going. That's at the point that she's at now, where like she's yeah. constantly said, no, look, no, like you say, no, it's not real. I know, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, there is no demon thing, demon god living in the sun. There's not, yes, yeah. there's not that. It's all nonsense. They're all fueled by nudge and, and claustrophobia and all this other stuff. But then, like, you notice that sometimes her answers, like, in the, um, towards the end of the third book, like, she's, she's asked this directly. And you have a panel of silence, which is rare. <laughs> yeah. And then the next one, she says no. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. So, and so that's that, that sort of hesitation. Of, is yeah, like, oh, wait a minute, she's not entirely sure herself anymore. Like, it's starting to seep in. Um, and this idea of sort of, um, as you said, the metatextualness of it, like this idea again, sort of the, the, the thing that was, I was just checking, I've got it, is Robert W. Chambers, uh, The King in Yellow, like, not, yeah. not, not the Lovecraftian version, not the, the, the creature that came later. 
but the idea of this play and these sets of yeah. stories that are, mm-hmm. in, that, that are complete sort of only linked by this version, this, this play that yeah. never gets described, never gets, but can drive you mad. But this thing that just exists in this weird, in this world that everybody else is aware of and sort of, you know, you almost want to dare yourself to read it. Oh, yeah, but I've, mm. I, I know that, you know, I know that Jeffries has read The King in Yellow and he went <laughs> mad after Act Two. And it's the same with this, where you're going, like, I don't want to know about it, but, I, you know, I've sort of got to. Well, that and goes over into, into Japanese horror as well, the ring cycle. You know, yes. Grudge, yeah. And, um, yeah, that sort of carries over into popular culture as a consequence. Without yes. anybody probably realising that mm. Chambers had written that all that time ago. That, that's that. I forgot what the name of that horror is, when it's, it's sort of transmitted by a thing. Yeah, or mim- not mimetic, I think is the word. Because yeah. that's, that's even something that we're really doing in, uh, in in book four, isn't it, really? Mm. Because the yeah. idea there that there is something that you shouldn't watch, if you watch it, then it's too late and you're 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 gonna turn psychopathic. And I think there's and I, I, I yeah, well, I think there's some really great Chambers is the, is the is the great example of that. But there was also and I can't remember when it was, I'm I'm racking my brains, but wasn't there that 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 it was the I'm going to say 1860s, 1870s. There was a popular song that allegedly, if you heard it, you committed suicide. And there were the oh, spate Tuesday. of. It's a Hungarian or. Oh, it's the Hung- yes, that's what it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was something like it's m- Rainy Tuesday. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's These right. These ideas that, that there are inherently dangerous things. That yeah. you can you can experience and and that's it. It's yeah. which, uh... well to be fair, I've listened to quite a bit of folk music. There's a lot of songs that you listen to. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you joke. There is that. There, there, there is there, and uh, my my parents actually were involved in the folk um, revival in the in the sixties. And I remember some of the 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 origins of some of the traditional songs have got those things about it. Mm. There was a there was a song uh, which was all these songs being handed down so they could be preserved but there was one song that was handed down in that kind of traditional fashion which nobody wanted to perform because it was considered blasphemous but everybody learned it so the song wouldn't be forgotten but nevertheless it wasn't as if you went to a club and they performed it was like no you shouldn't have done that that's 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 a, that's a bad idea and so even that it's not like i oh, will die but it was it was considered inappropriate they mm. wanted to make sure that the song wasn't lost but even so and i i, I love that idea that that sort of um both mimetic and hermetic information that, that is too, too too dangerous to, to to lose but too dangerous to hear well that, again that comes up to the language that you know, there's a secret language that actually gives people makes people have a physical reaction and stuff isn't it as well you've got that in there yeah in the books and stuff and so yeah i love that this idea of tradition but it's <clears throat> and we'll wrap up on this because there is one final point i want to get to but they say that it's tradition um i've literally just written an essay about this but this idea of like folklore and tradition gets um transmitted and then evolved to the environment yeah so, you know it moved from the sort of the rural and into, into the cities during the into, during the industrial revolution as then and has again mm-hmm. mutated during the internet age and then you transmit that into these sort of sealed environments in space mm-hmm. and again they change you know you're no longer looking at sort of like witch doctors or sort of wise women or cunning folk or whatever you're now looking at these sort of like sect leaders in this other thing and sort of like space now takes, and, and this idea of being in space takes a much more of an influence on it. So absolutely. Look- and, it, and it lurks there in the, in, intrinsically It's mentioned several times is the idea that they've taken with them anything they can take. Essentially they've, they've left, they've left earth with whatever they can carry. 
Yeah. And the important things they brought with them are their ideas and their memories, the traditions, m most of which they don't remember precisely because that's the way hand-me-down stories work. <clears throat> but the other thing, that, of course, they brought in is, is, is the very raw materials they need to live in, including mm. the air, because the air is the one vital thing that they absolutely yeah. need. And the idea that there are things stored, the, the, the air is a sort of um, almost like a, it contains recordings of, of all the things that have ever been said in it. And that is a thing that we return to on a number of different occasions, which is actually an old idea going back to, the, I think, the 17th century. The idea that the, the, the air is a sort of the ultimate record of, of speech and idea. And I love that. I thought if you know if your world dies, but you you just you you take some air from it, so you can go somewhere else and live in that pocket of air, which is essentially what they're doing, is that you have taken that essence with you. Mm. It goes back to that goes back to sort of pre-Newtonian alchemists' ideas, and I love that idea that those those sort of the weirdly those things which were so so fashionable and then everybody went no that's just completely ridiculous we've got science <laughs> now we don't need that and then you get to this point you're going well maybe you know maybe and you're we're actually it. seeing we're seeing that more and more in the present day where ideas that seemed preposterous because they were so old-fashioned are now being revived not because we're going oh that was true after all but we're going actually that was just a very odd old way of explaining something that we've now worked out but actually you can see they were onto the right thing they just said it in a way that made it sound yeah. ridiculous. I love how they, that. How they, how they articulate it. Oh, there's definitely sort of things in different sorts of magic and folklore and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Final point that you sort of said about how um, predictive um, this yeah. this series has been. Um, <laughs> yeah. We are, you know, we're now sort of got the the sort of the stop oil and, and the sort of, mm -hmm. you know, the protests that are going on and there's people predicting that, you know, it's we're two degrees away from complete sort of global catastrophe. We, we, we know this idea of sort of losing the earth um, is in some people's minds, you know, not a science fiction. It's, it's, it's a very sort of real yeah. fact. And we have these massive organizations, you know, that go sort of like, yeah, yeah, we're doing our best to, to, you know, bring down our carbon footprint as they all whack up the sort of production line. <laughs> and yeah. um, and I, I like the fact that, that we lose the earth and in such a human way, we sort of don't learn anything. No. Because we then go into space and the, the, the one percenters still rule everything. And yeah. there's yeah. still this thing of like driving profit. There's still sort of all this talk of uh, entertainment and all these other bits and pieces. But there's still this thing of going like, but this isn't going to last either. Like this is yeah. our last gasp. And you're still yeah. not learning the lesson. Like, yes, this is, the, the, Brink is end-stage capitalism in remission, briefly. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's like, we didn't think we'd get this extra few months, but we have. <laughs> and it's and I, 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 the thing is, clearly, when we set up Brink and we started it, which is, what, now six years ago, six, seven years ago, we started... Um, uh, we were we were we were drawing on things that were topical and 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 indeed predictive at the time. Things that we thought, oh, that's that's going to make this feel quite realistic if we if we extrapolate as all science fiction always does on things that are happening right now and extrapolate a condition to uh, ultimate or at least satirical uh, levels in order to make a point. But I found it weird that even in the comparatively short space time time we've been doing Brink. Some of the things that we've included, because they seem to fit and were interesting, now make it look like we're writing properly complicated satire, where we've, we've got an agenda that we're <laughs> yeah. trying to put across. And I'm going, it wasn't that at all. It's just that we took the same raw ingredients that were around us at the time. And actually, we've we've been experimenting with them in real time. 
whilst the world's been doing everything it's done. And actually, it's weird that we've reached the same conclusion. So you mentioned there the 1%, the idea that the corporations are still ruling everything, uh, that they haven't learned, that they weren't prepared to stop then and they're not prepared to stop now, that, that all that matters is the idea that they've got a literally captive audience, mm. that we've got essentially the, and we play it in a slightly different way, obviously, but the antagonistic nature of, of unions and trade union movements and labour movements mm-hmm. as being the bad guys... Uh, who are hurting these lovely corporations? The horrible men downstairs are hurting the horrible corporations. But the idea that one of the one of the even the the, the unions that we portray in a lot of detail, we're not we're trying we're trying to be very even handed. They are very tough. But the idea is that none of this would exist without them having built it in the first place. So survival entirely depends on them having done the very dangerous work to build the brink in the first place for them to be there. No wonder they're proud and defensive of that and their mm. traditions and their weirdnesses and all the things that drove them mad whilst they were doing it. Um, so again, to make that situation, so it is in some respects very clear cut that you've got you know rich people at the top and it's not very good and blah, blah, blah. But also that it's enormously complicated that the the there are you know these these things can't be unpicked in a very very simple way so i'd love to say that we sat down and we world built this agenda seven whatever <laughs> years ago and going right through this as a, as a work of fiction we will explore all the things that we want to explore um and it's not i i think in many respects it's it's actually more interesting to realize that if we started playing with the same ingredients and thinking, this is interesting, what would happen if, oh, well, that's, you know, and then you see those things sort of happening, like mm. I said, in real time, playing out at the same same moment. And I think that's, uh, uh, I think that's, it does make me worried about when we, we brainstorm the next book and uh, go, well, what should we put it in this time? And I go, should we put that in in case it comes true? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there's like book seven. I wouldn't want that to happen. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm now both very excited and concerned about what's coming in sort of like six and seven. Yeah. So, some uh, of the stuff, though, it was weird because there was some of the stuff, book seven, book five was written sort of during COVID, really. Yeah. And over that period. And it was... Um, there was stuff that we definitely you'd written and then three weeks later it actually happened. Yeah. Several yeah. times. So Several times although it comes out later, there, there was a moment which was like, holy crap, I didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You've just written about that four weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. And it did happen. So it's like, it is really writing. It's writing more in tandem than in reaction, really, to everything that's happening. Yeah. Around. And, it, and sometimes I do, I do think that's that maybe it doesn't necessarily get noticed. Not that it needs mm. to get noticed, but it doesn't get noticed by by the the, the lovely loyal readers of 2018 because 2018, from its its birth in 1977, has yeah. always been mm. iconoclastic and satirical. I mean, the greatest yeah. Judge Dredd being a really good example of that is 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 high satire at its most brilliant. And Judge Dredd itself has predicted, like the Simpsons, has predicted so many things just because it's yeah. gone, what's the most ridiculous thing we could do now? Oh, look, that'll happen in 10 years' time. And it, and it genuinely has. Yeah. And, I, and you see that happening all the time. So actually, um, uh, 2080 readers, in my opinion, have got an incredibly high uh, political awareness because they're reading a thing which relies on them understanding mm. the references that are being made and the, and the kind of nudge nudges that are being made but also they have an incredibly high satire threshold yeah because they're used to it they're going i'm completely accepting this world even though i know it's a parody of blah yeah because they're used to that and i think it's quite interesting that although there are certainly satirical elements in brink 
and therefore it seems to conform to the 2000 AD mode of going, aha, we're going to we're going to satirize the you know the society today in this story. There is that going on. I'm not not saying it isn't, but what is probably being read as high satire is not that at all. It's like, <laughs> oh my god, the world's done that too. Do you know what I mean? It's it is much more a case yeah. of we are simply extrapolating from a position that we built and weirdly ending up in places that look like satire or commentary because of the way the world's going. And I think that's, I don't know whether that's good or bad. I certainly think it's interesting, but I, I say, I think, I think, I think a lot of readers are going, Oh, it's like Joe Stredd, isn't it? It's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of exaggerating the world for, yeah. for dramatic effect or comic effect. And I'm going, well, no, not really, actually. No, not, not really. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is literally to the point where everything globally is happening so fast. That it's outrunning us, and it's yeah. you, you know it is worrying because of where Brink ends up. But it's like, I think it yeah it is one of those things where you don't really we we are really living in the in the time right now. So yeah. it's not, <laughs> and all writing is reflective of the era that it's written in, isn't it? To, to yeah. some degree, it's always mm -hmm. going to be subconsciously anyway. So. Well, I think they've always said about science fiction is science fiction is never about the future. Science fiction is 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 is, is, is about is about the right now. And I think yeah, it's really exactly. interesting that we're now writing science fiction that feels like the future because it's about the apocalypse. And you're going, oh, do you know what? <laughs> we're still writing about that. <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think I think that's one of the things. I mean, you know, it's funny you say that because I'm watching. I'm also doing like a watch through of the Twilight Zone, um, oh, the original uh, Rod yeah, Serling yeah. thing, and we're yeah. you know I'm working through with it with one of my podcast partners, and we're into season three. And one of my it, favorite shows of those. It's amazing, and I'm, I, I love so yeah. much of it, and it's it's fascinating. Because of that point, if you're watching it from the sort of like that thing in the, in you know, this is early 60s, sort of 61, 62. And there is so much there that you do yeah. go, you're sort of going like, wow, like Serling and obviously it had, um, you know, all these other authors and these contributors and stuff that you go and I'm watching episodes and going like, huh, like that clearly that became like 10 years later. Like I'm saying, well, that became a theme in a whole number of films like mm -hmm. later yeah. on or like, yeah. oh, that sort of came up again and again. And so it's it, you're right there's when it's written these things are you know when these these science fiction things are written well of the time you can see that it's sometimes not so much life imitating art it's often sort of like you know like art is predicting life like we yeah you can almost still see those conclusions coming i think there's also an element of the fact that we repeat the same mistakes i think when you mm. look at um the the, the great dictators that the charlie chaplin mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yeah and it was to his first bit of dialogue that he does. And, and it's one where he addresses the crowd and he talks about very liberal socialist points that he brings up within that speech. He wants everybody to work, get together and work together. And it's completely contradictory to the character he's playing. And, um, and yet that's written roughly how long after Lovecraft died? Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. When people talk about Lovecraft, they always say, oh, he's a man of his time. And I'm sort of thinking, no, he wasn't. He was particular <laughs> himself. But, yeah. but people did think just as liberally as they do today. Mm. Then They didn't think any differently. People do know right from wrong. <laughs> Throughout history, you can go right way back. And But mm. the point is, is that we seem to have this tipping balance where it just sort of shifts over into often greed and like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think yeah, if, you know. if if science fiction is is actually people are writing about the 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 now or the near present mm. by extrapolating the things around them, writing about their own environments for satirical or predictive effects, 
one of the reasons that science fiction seems to come true so often, particularly when it, it like I said, it's quite vicious, like Dread is or like The Simpsons is, or maybe like we are occasionally. One of the reasons that it seems so predictive is that I honestly think the people writing it are going, I'm going to put in this thing that is pure satire because it's extrapolating on something now because it's the most ridiculously stupid version of this trend that I can see possibly happening. Mm. And I am placing it in this as a warning mm. for you not to do it. And then it appears to be predictive is because no one listens to the warning. They ignore yeah. the warning and you end up with the same sort of thing. Now, I think that's, that's, that's great. You think about science fiction being predictive, like Arthur C. Clarke essentially inventing all these things before they actually happen. You go, well, that's brilliant. But I think thematically and socially, science fiction is doing that all the time. And the reason, unfortunately, it seems to be predictive rather than, um, um, uh, what's the word, um, uh, um, um, uh, informative, is is because we don't listen to the warnings. No. Well, we just seem to think, it's, it's funny because, you know, one of the things that's, that's noticeably absent, I would say, from, from the Brink universe is robots. Yes, um, and and that sort of technology. Yeah. So I was interested by that because often that's sort of like you know a, a science fiction trope, and, and and they exist over the place. But there's no, there's very little automation. This goes back to this analog world that you want to create. Mm-hmm. But one of the things, obviously, you know, we've had, um, you know, from the moment we sort of had this idea that the word robot, obviously, you know, when it was created, that sort of, uh, I can't remember the name of the play, but it builds through this idea of robotics and then mm. understanding, and and then obviously as computers got more. Um, faster and they could do more all of a sudden like these stories start to come through of like oh my god they're our destruction and all of a sudden like, mm-hmm. then you get like skynet and and mm-hmm. all these things and we go oh yeah no like that's that's awful but it's cool as well because yeah, because... <laughs> and then and then sort of like, all of a sudden you're seeing on like social media or on websites you go look look what robots can do now and you've got them running like a parkour course and jumping oh yeah well, did going, you know that today it was announced that I don't know which city it is, but a city in America has authorised the use of uh, robots that can apply lethal force to police its streets. Oh, that has actually happened. So we've now got Robocop. We've, yeah, we've, yeah. So we've got the mech judges are on yeah, the streets. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, an actual, I've read, I read recently, an AI, I don't know if you've seen the, the one that, that that's like a, a, a torso with a head and stuff. I forget the name of it, but it's an AI in a sort of a face and stuff. It's got the, that face. Actually gave female. evidence. Yes, that's the one. Okay, yeah. it was in a movie. It was in a movie, uh, White Knight or White something. And yeah. uh, a friend of mine directed that one, but it was called Sophia, I think. Or something Sophia. like that, yeah. Well, because of the advancements in the, so- the software and the AI that came with it, it gave evidence, and I refer to it as in it because I'm still confused about <laughs> oh, gendering. I know which one Gen- you're talking about. Okay. Totally different one. Yeah, <laughs> about gendering a robot. No robot. One gave evidence in Congress. Yeah. And that's what yeah. I am. I'm now. Oh. And I'm sort of like, okay, we're we're now in a weird, weird world. It went to the parliamentary committee over here to discuss Mm. digital rights or something. I can't remember what it was. Oh, AI art, I think, as well. Yeah, Yeah, that was here in... in, um... Was it House of Lords, was it then, or...? Yeah, the, the um, what do you call it when they... I think it happened in Congress as well, but yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and they actually sat down and gave their responses to stuff yeah. but it was interesting watching the people interviewing them because at first there was that nervousness of the fact that feeling like you're you know talking to an animatronic thing <laughs> but then as the articulate answers came back they're suddenly talking to it <laughs> the person yeah it was brilliant. and the british one was brilliant one because um <laughs> before the start of it it was going slightly wrong and he had to switch it off and switch it back on again <laughs> <laughs> 
I know. Fantastic. Fifty years from now, I'll be damned for saying that. But like, <laughs> yeah, this, so is why, listening. this is why. Yeah, this is why. Whenever, whenever Alexa does anything for me, I say thank you because it's going to remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, anyway, that was what that was. Just, so yeah, so we've we've gone through everything, and I've, this has been a fantastic conversation. And I want to say thank you very much for both of you coming on because it's been, and, and Brink is a wonderful series of books. Um, thank you. Uh, thank I've, you. I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and um, you know where it's going to go. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm. We do. Yeah, <laughs> we do. Yeah. I'd like to take this opportunity to apologise in advance for the ending of book five. <laughs> and the ending of book six and most of book seven. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those that sort of like I'm excited and looking forward to it with sort of an anticipation and anxiety. Anxiety. So yes. It's uh, but yeah, it, it stands up as and I often hear this because you know I'm, I would say I'm a latecomer to to Brink because of I've waited. I've got I've got the because I've got I, I get the. 2000 AD ultimate yeah, collection. Yeah, they're really so, nice. Actually. That wonderful, wonderful editions. Really well printed. Yeah. Um, because of the fact it's sort of I've really, I've you know I, I I jump on and off 2000 AD often and because I, I prefer reading sort of collected editions. Um, and so it's not easily penetrable. You you get to have that wider world, but do not be scared by it. Go back, get the editions. You can obviously get the individual books, or you can get these sort of collected editions um, from the ultimate collection. But it's a wonderful and it's it's standing up as to me. And I, I'm trying not to sort of sound like I'm blowing smoke or sort of like you know just, pr- just praising for the sake of it, but it stands up as no, one praise of those, away. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it will stand up as one of those sort of like collections of works within the 2000 AD uh, legacy that people will go. That works as, as not just individual books, but as an overarching thing. This is what 2000 AD does best: is these sort of types of stories where it's not what you expect it takes you by surprise it does different things it looks fantastic and it's sort of it does technically it's wonderful um i mean one of the things i would say is just to sort of as a final point is i was in i, I read a lot there's european science fiction and i'm often i'm often sort of saddened that we don't get a lot of it translated into english yeah. this still has a feel of that european science fiction as well yeah yeah mm-hmm. Um, which I, I I greatly appreciate as well. So it's it's it has that appeal as well. So um, did I talk to you about? The, I think I spoke to you about it before because I grew up on Valerian and Laureline. Mm. And yeah, you those, mentioned it. Yeah, all those European books. Yeah, big influence. But yeah, rather than the US side of things, really, it's much more the European side of things. Oh, this 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 has definitely has got that. This is way more sort of that European flair than than uh, the US books. And I'm, so this is why I'm glad that it was picked up by. 2000 AD rather than you going to go off to sort of like a, a vertigo or dark horse. Cause I think that would have maybe sort of shifted the, the, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But... I think it would have truncated it if nothing else, because we'd have been forced to get yeah. it into a smaller space. Yeah. And that yeah. would have lost one of the intrinsic qualities of what it was, mm. uh, that it, it has that, it has that sort of meandering feel because it finds its own space to do that in, I suppose. Yeah, What's and it amazing needs that, is we get to tell it in the space that we get to tell it as well, because it's most series of 2008 are 12, 12 parts long, mm. whereas we get to run for quite a substantial amount <laughs> of time. I think the last one was 24 parts. So, mm. you know, we get a good run at it. And so it's really great to be able to have that space and that time to be able to do it, you know, because yeah. it's such a different beast to everything else, I think. Yeah. It does. It breathes, and in breathing in that way, it's sort of you've, you've you've created a different world, or well, actually, no, let's say it, you've screwed up a world and built. Something else. 
No, it, it was already screwed up. When we got <laughs> That's pretty yeah. yeah. It wasn't us. This was how we found it. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, yes, oh, well, there will be a, uh, if you hold on, guys, there'll be more information about Brink and where you can find it, and there'll be links down below uh, in all the notes. But, but, um, Ian and Dan, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. This has been great fun. I've really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I will be recommending obviously Brink to as many people as possible. And not just, I would say, the the the, the written word. There's obviously there's an audiobook version as well. There is. Yeah. Or an audio yeah. drama version that's on Audible and, and several other places. So if yeah. you want it, if you can't read it, check it out on, and listen to it. Uh, I haven't listened to it yet, but I will try that. Anyway, um, where can people find you, uh, Dan? In where can people find you? So, so Dan, where can people find you and other things that you are doing? Uh, uh, well, they can find me in all sorts of places. I'm I'm quite easy to well, relatively easy to track down on things like uh, Facebook. Weirdly, which I is it's like a, an old drug habit that I can't quit. I used to, I am on Twitter, but I don't use it on account of the trash fire that it's turned into. So I um uh, um. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm reachable. I think you, you, you just, you, you, I think, uh, I think you can, even if you just direct message me on things like Facebook, you can find me. Even if you're not a friend of mine, you can find me appearing in all sorts of things. 2018 on a very regular basis. Obviously, Brink is a thing that I, I love doing. I'm also doing the Out um, and Sinister Dexter and uh, uh, something else that completely escapes me. Oh, Farrell and Foe. There's lots of things going on in 2018. Obviously, Lawless in the magazine. And I'm writing stuff for uh, Marvel and DC at the moment. I'm just, just in fact, yesterday they launched the Warhammer game Dark Tide, the computer game that I've been working on for the last two years. Uh, and I obviously write for uh, for uh, the Warhammer universe on a mm. regular basis. And I've spent the last two years writing the biggest and most ridiculous novel I'm ever going to write for them, which will <laughs> coming out in February. So, so there's a there's a there's a there's a huge amount of places that even if you can't see me directly, you can certainly see uh, see the horrors of my handiwork. Excellent, so much, so much to check out there. Thank you, and, and Colbert, what about yourself? Where can people find you and what you're up to? Um, hidden away in, <laughs> in the dark in a cave somewhere, <laughs> shivering. No, um, I. Uh, I've got a Twitter for what that's worth. <laughs> I don't know what that means anymore and how long it'll be there. Uh, the other one is I don't have I don't have the urge to Exodus to Mastodon and all those other things because I've just about <laughs> managed Twitter. So um, you know, I can't... Ex- Exodus to Mastodon sounds like a Star Trek episode. I, I, did, I, did, I, did, I was like, wow, that's that's got a beat to it. That has. But the but the other one was uh, I've got an Instagram account, ING Colbert Instagram, I guess. I don't know how you do the handles on those ones. Yeah. And then um I have a Facebook, but it's a shut one. <laughs> like, so I'm barely contactable. I don't even have a website and nobody knows who I am anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> I keep incognito. No, yeah. I I don't have um they do say make sure you've got an artist website and they, I've never had one. Okay. The, um, but I do have Instagrams kind of and um, no Instagram and the other one. I do st- I have started to post artwork on there, uh, uh, which I'm always kind of find weird to do, but I do yeah. try to. Um, but yeah, so I'm cool. I'm around. And you have got obviously uh, Salamadre has come out. Yeah. That's oh, a, yeah. that's okay. out now and uh, from Burger Books and um, yeah, <laughs> that's me basically. Yeah, no, that's cool. We'll say there'll be links to all these sorts of things down below. But, cool. we'll, uh, but yes, but anyway, again, once again, thank you very much. It's been a great evening to talk to you guys. And uh, uh, when this goes out, I'll let you know. But uh, 
Corbo, uh, Dan, thank you very much. Thank you for having us on. Thank you. We shall talk again soon. There we go, guys. I really enjoyed doing that interview. They were really fantastic to talk to. It was a great fun. Um, laughed a lot. Enjoyed, learned a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, this is sort of the second time I've spoken with uh, Colbert this year. And uh, hopefully, we might have Dan back at some point to talk about other things that he's done. Probably around the Warcraft or the world, you know, the four K. Um, yeah, forty forty K, isn't it? Anyway, more to that. Anyway, for now, if you like what we are doing and you want to see more of it. Um, please leave a review on your podcast catcher whatever you're listening on to now go on leave a four star five star whatever you want to review just any feedback is good and we greatly appreciate it but if you really enjoy what we're doing and you want to help us keep the lights on at 20th century towers uh, go over to patreon we have a patreon account on there it's www.patreon.com slash 20 so that's two zero cg media there's a link down below in the notes uh, and we do all kinds of things on there i do a 30 minutes thoughts i'm joined by julian to do uh the, our run through of the twilight zone twilight zone trekking through the twilight zone uh, and we have creator corner as well so this is almost like a snippet of what creator corner could be so ladies and gentlemen anyway thank you very much for all your support and listening this year and uh have a very merry christmas And uh, we shall see you again in uh, the new year. Thanks very much.